Hello and welcome to another show of Let's Talk Property on Radio Reverb 97.2 FM and DAB. This is Brighton and Hove's local community radio and I have a very special guest again with me today. Now, planning issues. Have you ever had any planning issues? Well, I've had plenty because I've moved lots and lots of times, as you've already heard. I've done renovations, extensions, etc. And I haven't always got it right first time round. But I have Damien Sullivan from the Sigma Homes Group based in Horsham with me today, who I'm hoping is going to answer lots of planning questions. So first and foremost, Damien, thank you for joining me today. It's really good to be joining you today, Heather. Thank you for having me. No, really lovely to mix and match all these different sort of housing industry issues. So um, I'm really looking forward to today. Now, tell me, was Sam planning your first choice career? No, not at all, actually. Um, I was brought up in West Sussex, so I have a local connection with the area. And then I went uh, to Sussex University to study geography. Um, So I know Brighton extremely well and absolutely love the city. Uh, But I think I had an interest in built form and place and environment, all the things that planning addresses, but I didn't really know it at the time. So, no, it certainly wasn't the the first thing that uh, I went to. I then went to Exeter University to study wetland archaeology uh, because in my head I harboured a vision of being a a West Country Indiana Jones. (laughs) Um, But uh, I was a bit deluded and tracing around various bogs on the Exmoor with a small trowel. Um, But uh, yeah, faced with either academia or, or a post in a museum, I thought, I think I'll try and find a job locally. And that's when I applied to become a planning assistant at Arran District Council. And I had a vague idea about what uh, planning was in, in terms of that from the undergraduate degree. But when I came into the post, it was a tremendous shock to me. Uh, it was such a varied role. And I think uh, the councils do so much, so much more than your typical sort of conservatories and single story extensions that you think about. I was exposed to recreational facilities, educational sites, ecclesiastical buildings. It was just such a great training ground. And I was also exposed to a lot of the political pressures as well in decision making. I took items to committee um, as well as enforcing decision making as well. But during my time there, I wanted to grow in in my planning role and I wanted to become a chartered town planner. So I undertook a planning degree at Brighton University. And there were many speakers that, that came in on that master's course. And I remember one time there was a lecture given by a couple of consultants from Humbert's Leisure. And the exercise was to try and look at a recreational facility in the London borough of Merton. It was purely hypothetical about how we might develop it. And that really inspired me. I thought, well, I have to take account of all the constraints, but also have to maximise the the viability of the site as well and I thought this is real fun. Um, It took me a few more years after leaving the council and becoming a chartered town planner to then join a planning consultancy for the other side of the fence, uh, then a strategic land promoter and finally I came to Sigma Homes Group in January 2020 to build the planning function and to help develop the strategic side of the business with my land director Chris East and chief executive Jeff Potton. Now you've got, I, I'm fascinated by qualifications. You've got MRTPI and PIEMA after your name. What do they stand for? 
so that's uh, essentially a chartered town planner is MRTPI. It's the Royal Town Planning Institute. Um, and then the PIEMA stands for Practitioner for the Institute for Environmental Management and Assessment. You can see why that's in an acronym, <laughs> but it essentially means that um, with, with the latter qualification that I can look at environmental impact assessments. So that's looking at the environmental impacts of development schemes. So you, you're now at Sigma Homes Group in Horsham, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. yes. OK, so what do you do at Sigma Homes Group? Well, there's two sides of the business. Um, first of all, there's the Sigma Homes, which is a house builder business, which has an emphasis on good quality design. And typically the areas that we cover is within one hour's drive of the centre of Horsham. So this includes East and West Sussex, Surrey, and very recently we've added Hampshire as well to our area of search. And to date, we've got sites in Anstey near Hayward Heath, uh, Guildford, Hassocks, Ringmer, Maresfield, Ashplatz near East Grinstead, and also Plumpton Green. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting because the Plumpton Green site sold all off plan. We just couldn't build them quick enough. And it really does show the strength of the market out there at the moment, I think, um, but also that we build a great product as well. Um, we've also recently acquired a site in Angry uh, near the sunny south coast, which we're enormously excited about for, for 40 dwellings. So they'll be going on the market very soon. And then there's the other side of the business, and that's the strategic land side, which I touched on. And the area of search there is, is much further afield. We've got East and West Sussex, but we've also got outer London and the home counties and the shires. And typically we buy land under option or promotion agreements. Uh, and then we undertake the planning with the help of very professional consultant teams. So both sides make up the Sigma Homes Group. It's fascinating. I mean, all these different counties that you cover are the problems, say I say the problems with planning, because all I hear, obviously, here in London, brand new home sometimes is issues with planning and things aren't moving quick enough. Is it the same throughout England when you are dealing with uh, local authority planning departments or does it differ? Do you get some who are a little more uh, sort of commercially based or do they just have a process that they have to go through? Um, well, there is a very rigorous and uh, robust process. I mean, it, it's right that planning looks at every angle. Um, there's so many aspects to consider, really, in a, in a planning application, and uh, it has to satisfy all of them. But uh, I would say that, um, you know, every or local authority has sensitivities and constraints within its shores and you have to take regard to those. I would say that in the southeast we are seeing an additional layer of environmental sensitivities and a difficulty in getting planning permissions through um, and that's principally due to groundwater neutrality nitrates and phosphates neutralities and um, I think it's a bit underreported if you're not in the industry but what these are basically mean is that where you get neutralities, you have to try and show that there's mitigation in place um, and that there is no impact on the natural environment. So that is really causing uh, a lot of problems in trying to forge a way uh, ahead together uh, until a mitigation system is, is worked out. Just to demonstrate the scale of the problem is, is enormous in the South because 
um, around 10,000 homes are not being delivered in the Solent and Southampton water area. So it's definitely something that hopefully we can get resolution on very shortly. I think this is the issue. Um, on the one hand, we're saying we're not building enough homes. On the other side, we've got you know, the planning process that has to be gone through. Then we've got all the environmentals and we've got all the other things that go along with strategic sites. How on earth do we manage to marry the two together so we are delivering the homes that are needed so badly? Mm. And, and the, the mix of homes as well, so private homes, affordable homes, social housing, put all that in the mix and it's really very, very difficult. It is, absolutely. And, and I think that the government, um, you know, is going to hopefully uh, grasp the nettle and, and deal with these issues through the forthcoming levelling up and regeneration bill. Um, but, you know, it, it needs to take a view as well about uh, these neutrality issues for groundwater, nitrates and phosphates in particular, because uh, you're absolutely right. You know, the government has pledged 300,000 homes to be built per annum by the mid 2020s. But yet we have a huge affordability issue in the South. And, you know, it's not just about open market, it's also about the affordable housing being a part of that. And, and that's a real social problem as much as anything else. I do like the ideas, you know, sometimes of these, you know, the static homes that you've got that maybe, um, we're going back to almost prefab there, aren't we, where you've got perhaps static homes or tiny homes just for people to get their foot on the ladder. But again, I imagine there are lots of steps and hoops to jump through if you wanted to start building those sort of properties. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're governed in, in the same way, basically, as anything else. They're regulated and they need to be looked at uh, in planning terms. I think, you know, when you look at uh, affordable housing, you know, that is that's so key to uh, young people getting on the housing ladder. And I was reminded of a time actually very recently of when I stood up at a parish council meeting in East Sussex. And there were lots of people there that didn't want the development. They had their, their placards. And there was a young gentleman who stood up at the, uh, the end of the room and he said, well, my parents have lived here all my life. I have lived here all my life. I went to school locally. I've got all my friends here, but I can't afford to move uh, to a separate home outside my parents' home uh, and move into the village which was a real shame and, and he welcomed the scheme, but uh, he was very much shut down that night. And it's just about how we engage with that demographic. Um, and I think it's about having accessibility and legitimacy and equality in the system, everything that's important to the democracy of planning. And it's about how to engage with that. I, I think that uh, interestingly, social media almost drowns out their voices because it's those that commonly object to the schemes that have a little bit more time on their hands that can make their voices heard, which is a, which is a real shame because we need to really reach out and grasp the, the scale of the problem here. So when your alarm clock goes off in the morning, are you generally eager to get up out to bed, leap out and get into the office and deal with things? Or is it generally difficult stuff that you've got to deal with? Um, <laughs> it, it, it's always difficult, Heather. It, it's an interesting <laughs> question, uh, especially on a Monday. Uh, but <laughs> it, it, I, I would say that it's probably the varied nature of the job, actually, that um, helps me spring out of bed a little bit more keenly. What, what I do is completely interprofessional. I, I talk to so many technical experts in my day 
Um, I was on a call the other day for a site we've got in Seven Oaks District Council, and there were about 10 or 12 different consultants on there, all dealing with different disciplines. And obviously there were sort of tensions between the different disciplines and it's about how to reconcile those within the scheme and which ones we take forward. So I would say that was a, a really interesting angle. But then next day I might be involved in the political arena because planning is inextricably linked to politics and, and how they can have the interplay between them. So um, I, I would say that, you know, it's that variety that really helps me get up and go. Um, and the Sigma Homes Group Q&As that I've been doing with various industry professionals has really sort of showcased that variety. Um, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We've come to the end of the second series. We're planning a third. But yes, yet again, it's about the environmental pressures butting up with the house building agenda and how we're going to reconcile that. That comes up time and time again, wherever you look. No, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, I'd love to hear of the most recent successful project that you feel you've driven through. It could be as easy as as you think it was or a complicated one. So what would you say the most successful project that you've handled whenever during your career in terms of planning? Um, well, it was really good to have acquired the site in Angering that I touched on for uh, 40 dwellings. And we hope to construct, uh, build construction um, this summer. It was an allocated site in the local plan and it does deliver 30% affordable housing as well as public open space. So it was great to see that one get over the line um, and for us to start um, building very shortly. Um, we're, we're buying all sorts of things on the immediate side of the business for 20 dwellings uh, and upwards and the strength of the profit market remains strong uh, it's definitely even following stamp duty being removed last year there, there's definitely a change in uh, buyers mindsets um, there's there's a shift away at least what we've seen is a shift away from apartments and flats and it's more about having that garden space having the flexibility for home working that you know we we're looking at trying to deliver through our site um, and our strategic business is flourishing as well with an ever-expanding portfolio over a wide area. So we've got lots of exciting uh, irons in the fire. It's hard to identify one. We've just got a lot going on at the moment, which is great news. I often wonder, you know, a hundred years in the future, when people turn around and they look at homes, properties that have been built in the, you know, in today's days, whether they'll turn around and go, oh, those are properties from the 2020s because they've got, as you just said, you know, maybe more garden space, maybe some outside space with balconies. How much do you look to the future for what future generations will want from their properties? How can you build that in? Do you have focus groups or do we just look at trends? How does it work? I think you have to be alive to uh, what the buyer demands out there, certainly. I think that you know, it's it's often the case that, um, you know, we, we're looking at more and more renewables and, and green energy. I think that is definitely something that has been coming across from the Environment Bill of the government from last year. And more and more, you're seeing that as planning requirements as well within um, schemes. So, for example, we're putting in EV charging points to every plot in our development, which is, you know, again, a, a real sign of progression and embracing the future and the, and the green agenda. I, I think that as well, it's, it's about trying to uh, engage with local communities when, when you're putting in the application or even before. 
um, to try and understand what they want to see in their communities. And often it can be a flexible working hub, for example, where you know, they're not going into the office five days a week, that they want to hot desk, that they want to get their cup of coffee, sit at a computer and fire off some emails. And it's about delivering that in the scheme as much as a load of housing. Um, so it's, it's a varied offering. And of course, with that, you get a lot more public benefits, which, which has to be a good thing. As you know, uh, me and Bob have been in the industry a long, long time, and we've seen lots of changes over the years. Um, years ago, when we were involved with developers, it was very much this is what we're delivering. And, you know, occasionally you go to the village hall and you'd have a discussion with the locals. So I find it really interesting and encouraging that you know, developers are now engaging with their local buyers, actually, aren't they? And people who will be singing the praises of the developers for their how they build, how they communicate with the local people, the types of properties that they build. Are there any planning changes coming in over the next six months that we should be aware of? Or are they just as needs be, really? So we are certainly waiting on um, which direction Michael Gove turns in, in terms of setting housing numbers. So uh, currently we have uh, what's called the standard methodology for calculating housing need. And um, it has actually been quite an interesting exercise. There's been a 35% uplift in the top 20 cities and urban centres in England. Uh, if you take the example of Brighton, um, you know, which cannot meet its housing need as it stands, and then you put on the requirement of 35% with the sea on one side, the South Downs on the other, um, and heavily constrained spatially anywhere. Um, you, you do actually face a real problem there. And actually, I think it's probably the, the leafy surrounding areas that are probably going to have to, to take that growth. So I think Michael Gove has a, a certain uh, obligation to look at that aspect of it, as well as uh, clearly, there will be the levelling up agenda as well and what that means in, in terms of a, a national setting of, of housing. There was certainly a, a bold vision with the Housing for the Future white paper, but that has been stymied recently with the seeming lack of a, a planning bill. I mean, there was supposed to be a lot of planning reform taking place. There was talk of zonal planning. That doesn't seem to have been coming forward now. Um, and I think that the government was surprised by the strength of the reaction by the white paper consultation and has taken stock. But I think it's going to be really interesting over the next six months about the levelling up and regeneration bill. What that, what's that going to look like? And I think that more generally levelling up is quite a complex and deep rooted problem. It's very multifaceted. And um, I, I think it's not just a financial solution. I think it's really across every spectrum of society. So it will be interesting to see uh, what that contains. I think it's interesting what you say about Brighton. I mean, years ago, I was in my late teens. Um, I was actually temping down at the Brighton Marina when they were first building Brighton Marina. And in fact, when I was down there over the Easter weekend, I can remember them talking about putting the roads in from the top coastal road down into the marina. And I, I couldn't really visualise it. But when you think of the number of residential homes that are down there now, 
I'm just wondering whether we could see more of that type of development popping up around the UK coast. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it could be the case that, you know, it has to go up um, and the skylines have to increase because of that. And, you know, I think that, you know, the coast is, is very constrained by its nature um, and you might see that pattern emerging. One of the things that has um, emerged in, in recent times is an expansion of permitted development rights. And we are seeing an awful lot of offices going to residential. Um, but then the, the quality of the accommodation is not always there. And of course, the affordable housing is not always there. So it is um, you know, good to look at brownfield development within the cities. But there is a limited amount as well of that in terms of the opportunities that are available. And flats notoriously uh, don't deliver the same quantum of affordable housing as, um, as greenfield sites. I suppose in one way we're very lucky down here in the south. We've got the, the south downs, we've got the sea, but essentially that limits the amount of land that we have to build on. And certainly around our area where we've got the greenfield uh, between Worthing and Ferring, you know, that's a contentious site at the moment for new homes. How on earth do we, how do we please everybody when we've got sites like this you know tiny little are, are we going to end up just on the brownfield sites filling in tiny little pockets of brownfield or are we better to consider brand new towns you know we've got all the, the the new towns that were built years and years ago where you can actually plan everything to the nth degree is that a better way of doing it it could be. I mean, it is difficult to um, appease everybody. Planning is not a popularity contest. Um, and it just has to be about what works in terms of its sustainability and what it can deliver. Now, with new settlements, there is the capacity to deliver so much more. Um, you know, you can deliver entire facilities at, at a stroke. But, you know, with that you know, comes the challenges of long timescales, uh, which, you know, edge of settlements can clearly come within the local plan period where we have a housing crisis, you need to have that addressed immediately. So it is it is certainly very difficult. They, the, the site you're referencing, I, I'm aware of that one near Worthing, and that's got a strategic gap um, designation, as I understand it. And it is about trying to look at it as, as much as possible in the round, you know, to see whether or not there is that housing need within the local authority and how we can best deliver it and is that the most appropriate site there's lots of questions uh, but as I say you know there's no correlation and this is often a surprise to probably a lot of your listeners there's no correlation between the level of objection we get on a scheme um, and the uh, level of success or the chances of it going through for a planning permission it has to be based on material planning considerations so you can't really use nimbyism as an excuse, can you? <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, mm. But often, you know, the, the local residents can shine a light on their own experiences of an area, which is enormously helpful. They can actually say, um, you know, about their relationship to um, a site where they're generally adjacent to it. 
but um, you know that has to be taken into account and, and loss of the view is a material planning consideration again a surprise I think um, but it is about looking at sort of loss of privacy loss of light they are things that can be taken into account and, and how we can best serve neighbouring development as well as, as our own there's lots at play uh, as you can imagine when working up a planning application. Do you think local people get involved early on enough in the process? I mean, it's sometimes very late when they start complaining about we don't want these new homes. If they actually got involved from the outset, would it produce better results in the longer term? Always. I mean, the, the public engagement is actually written into the MPPF and it, it really should come before um, the submission of a major projects application. Now that could take the form of um, either an in, in, informal approach to a parish council, or it could be a lot more of a formal consultation saying these are the current plans, you know, they're not particularly finesse, there's just a general sense that there's development going on this site. Uh, and what would they like to see in their community, uh, whether it be improved pedestrian footpaths, connections, bus services, there's, there's a whole array of things that you could potentially look at, as well as, you know, looking at, you know, is that the best area of the site, if you get a very large site, to deliver that quantum of, of housing there. Um, I think it's important to be constructive at all times, and I think that certainly in recent years, planning's become quite adversarial. And, and that's a shame because I think the spirit of the 1947 Planning Act was to try to work together to try and uh, forge common ground because ultimately we're all trying to work hopefully towards the same aim uh, and that goes for local authorities too so I think that you know if we were all to come together and you know we always try to do that through the pre-application process not just because it's written down in policy okay. but also because it makes for good design and good planning policy practice um, then I think you've got that sort of certain ingredients and, and then we get a much better scheme and a much better reaction to the scheme when it goes live. I love that you mentioned the 1947 Town Planning Act because that was designed to deal with problems in cities. So things like congestion, slums, pollution. OK, we are getting there, but it's taken us an awful long time to reorganise our road systems, congestions, you know, we're introducing cycle lanes, which in itself brings in even more problems. We've had quite a few issues in Brighton and Hove. Uh, we've had cycle lanes changed in Worthing over the years. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, is this going to be a continual circle of having to revisit planning and change all the policies or introduce more policies because something's not working is it no absolutely not and i think that you know one constant is change um and i think that uh, it is political the planning system and therefore each government that comes in uh, rightly wants to try and shape it the way they see fit but of course that there is no um, constant hand in that process and that leads to a lot of uncertainty we have certainly seen uh, very recently in, in respect to the housing numbers that I've touched on that Michael Gove is going to be releasing um, local plan stalling. So, you know, the, the council's rightly saying potentially um, that uh, we cannot set our housing 
supply figures because we don't know what they will be set uh, as a, at a national level. So, you know, I think that, you know, sometimes it is about trying to, yes, progress matters with planning and try to make it evolve, make it current, but also try to keep, keep some sort of stability on it and keep some clear direction as, as per the environmental problems that we're facing at the moment. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Let's Talk Property with Heather Hilda Darling and my guest, Damien Sullivan, Senior Planning Manager at Sigma Homes Group in Horsham. Now, we're having a great conversation about planning. If you've got any questions, please email me, heather at rwhilda.co.uk. And at the end of the show, Damien will be giving us some of his contact details if you have any queries. So, Damien, we've just been talking about um, 1947 Town Planning Act. And now what I would like to move on to is some um, things like contributions from developers when it comes to building these new sites. I think what a lot of people aren't aware of is the amount of, of a budget that goes into just promoting a site from the outset. Now, you talked about option agreements and promotion agreements. Obviously, it's all it's one word, but does not describe all the work that goes into these option and promotional <laughs> agreements. So how does it actually work where you have to obviously pay for your planning applications? You go back to the drawing board, you go back to the planners. Just describe that sort of process to me. Well, there's certainly a lot of upfront costs that uh, developers, promoters have to fund and the landowner gets into options or promotion agreements um, with a developer because then uh, often it's the case that they can fund the project. Now, these can be hundreds of thousands of pounds to take a project through from inception to realising a planning permission. And the, the sort of timescales that strategic planning operates under, believe it or not, are sometimes 10 or even 15 year periods. So there's quite a lot of crystal ball gazing about where the world will be and what um, the, the landscape will look like in, in those times. And of course, then you have to budget uh, throughout the lifetime of the development. There's certainly a lot of promotion costs that go with that to ensure that uh, it's, it's offered up through the local plan process to hopefully receive an allocation or the neighbourhood plan process and engaging with uh, local community groups as well being an important part of that and then it's the planning application itself which with major projects um, there's so many complex parts and technical disciplines that uh, you know you have to get a consultant on for every single discipline reconciling that making sure that it actually accords with all the different legislation and policies and and to be acceptable so, uh, yes, certainly with contributions for developers, there, there's that element to it. In terms of the local planning authorities, now they expect developer contributions as well to fund the projects for social services such as healthcare, but also for roads and for schools. And um, that can be swept up in what's called a community infrastructure levy, uh, SIL. SIL, and yep. Yeah, you might have heard of that. And, and that's a flat, that's a flat rate. You know, that's actually, you know, it's, it's, it's different depending on the authorities, but it's a, it's a, a standard rate. But where you don't always get a SIL and authority, you can get Section 106, which are very specific to the site. And they still levy the same developer contributions and obligations, but just in a very um, 
in a very sort of niche form. So um, that's our current system. Now, the Queen's speech is forecast to say that in the coming weeks, there'll be a flat rate levy, which will effectively end uh, Section 106, which is an interesting proposition. And we've heard it before when SIL was introduced. They said that uh, Section 106 wouldn't uh, have a place anymore. But here we have still in this world, Section 106 running alongside SIL in many cases. So the levy is set to pave the way for an expansion, according to the government, of an explosion of council housing. Um, so there won't be the setting of an affordable housing percentage on a site anymore. It will be more about um, collecting funds, putting that into a central pot, and then for the councils to redistribute onto their own project projects. So we're expecting a formal con consultation to begin in the next few weeks. Um, and I think that will be really interesting to see. Uh, I think the government was saying that it would raise around about £7 billion, assuming that the costs are the same as the current affordable housing rate. So we're talking about huge sums of money um, and we don't know whether or not the councils will be able to use all the money however they see fit, uh, but they are likely to funnel it into local authority schemes. So um, there is, again, more uncertainty coming, I think, but uh, yeah, hopefully the mist will clear in the next few weeks. It's interesting, you know, obviously when um, sites are taking 10 to 15 years to come to fruition, um, we've last July, wasn't it, when suddenly all the material costs and labour costs shot up. How do you budget for that over a period of 10 to 15 years? It's a really interesting question, actually. And um, I think that we have to take into account inflation and indexation and looking at past trends and trying to extrapolate as best we can for future deliveries. But we have seen an unprecedented rise uh, in inflation and the costs for, for building materials, like you say, timber in particular, and brick and the scarcity of brick. So it is to an extent trying to chart the impossible. It is very, very difficult to sit here today to try and say what um, a brick will cost in 15 years time and to an extent you know one one has to take a view on it as best best you can i think that um certainly with what we're seeing at the moment i'm, I'm hoping that it will be a point in time and things will settle down and so part of it is to say that uh, maybe uh, costs will reduce um, but at the same time, if we're looking over shorter timescales, you just have to take it at face value and say, well, this is today's value. We'll have to make sure that that's the case in, in five years time. It is incredibly difficult to do. So when we talk about planning, we sort of lump it all into one great big heap, don't we? But I think there are different strands of planning. Can you just take me through those just to make me understand you know how different elements of a of a site work together and how you would 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 work with perhaps colleagues or consultants on that planning side you did you did allude to it with the different types of consultants so presumably you're talking about environmentals ecology um you know road people am i correct or can you put me right <laughs> absolutely you know you are correct i mean it can be anywhere between 10 to 20 different consultants on a major projects team um, and they really um, have to make sure that they all work together collaboratively 
and to ensure that all the elements are, are there. And But ultimately, it's the planning consultant's job to try and draw them all together to take a view about what's important um, in order to potentially get a permission over the line. And it's, you know, there, there are many facets to it. I, I touched on environmental impact assessment. Now that looks at the likely significant effects of a project or a development. And again, you know, you're looking at a whole array of things such as ecology, landscapes, heritage, um, highways, um, and even things such as cumulative impacts of development. So you'd be looking at, say, allocated sites in the neighbourhood plan or the local plan, as well as those that have built out. And you're looking at whether or not in the round, your site will create likely significant environmental effects. Now, commonly, that threshold is set at about 150 dwellings. So if you're under that, you can feel pretty smug. Um, but if you, it is quite a nuanced judgment. So you could say, well, it's an A and B setting or it's, uh, it's Greenbelt. And therefore, um, it's something that needs to be looked at with the council um, to see if that will cause the significant effects. And you, you basically try and whittle down what's going to be important. And interestingly, as part of the EIA uh, legislation in many recent years, we've had public health being added to it. So, for example, we'd be looking at air quality impacts of the development, the traffic generation that's being caused. Um, and then that needs to be looked at as well and determined whether or not that will have uh, an adverse impact on those living nearby or even in the surrounding area. So, yes, it, it's really very, very complex, um, but it does need a union and a joined up approach to make sure that the whole thing sort of hangs together. I do find it fascinating because obviously over the years I've seen a lot of um, layouts and I've seen a lot of design concepts. And when it comes to, for example, you wouldn't think about it normally, brick colour. You know, I mean, that is something that often <laughs> in here in the South, you think, does it really matter what colour the bricks are? But yes, it does really, doesn't it? Because it can give a totally different aspect of those homes, even if you mix some of the bricks sometimes. So tell me, are there any new materials that really are beginning to come through that excite you for use in new upcoming sites? For example, let me just suggest solar panels. You know, solar panels can be quite unsightly. Mm. But now there are new products that are coming out that actually look like roof tiles that you'd look at them and you'd think if there was a drone flying overhead, you probably wouldn't realise that they are solar panels. And from an aesthetic point of view, that gets me quite excited because the thought of having those <laughs> massive panels on the back of my garage, I don't think it's aesthetically pleasing. So, you know, is there anything that you're hearing about or anything maybe at the exhibitions that I'm sure you go to or demands from planning authorities that want to see, do they generally go for the tried and tested or are some of them quite forward thinking and let's try this. I mean, we've heard about rainwater harvesting for years and years. We've heard about, you know, under home heating, etc. These, um, what do they call, water pumps, mm -hmm. but it's not always practical. So how do you balance the two by, by using these, this new technology with maybe the old technology, but getting something that's pleasing and acceptable to home buyers? 
I think that um, it is important to try and find a development that does read as one. And if you do introduce these new technologies, such as solar panels that are disguised as, as roof tiles that are very discreet, you know, that, that can be a really good thing. You know, you achieve that, uh, that, that sort of renewable energy incentive um, and the, the sort of carbon neutral drive to development. But at the same time, you're also trying to make sure that the development is, is blending into the surroundings. And increasingly, you're seeing that local authorities have design codes and you know that can sometimes uh, specify some of the uh, newer materials that are being experimented with um, but often it's it's very much a case of saying well it, it should just at least blend in with the surroundings which makes good planning sense so um yeah I, I think it's an exciting time for planning for renewable energy for the green agenda and it's just about how we all come together and deliver that i mean it can be a very bespoke treatment that you could have on site um, or alternatively it can be a more of a, a general push in a certain area but I think the the whole emphasis on the government saying that uh, building beautiful commission and the imperative to try and put design codes front and center uh, in the in, well, what was going to be the plan for the future white paper and, and the bill was going to be something that you know we could ultimately see again in the leveling up agenda you said building beauty there uh, that's surely in the eye of the beholder so i don't know how you marry <laughs> well exactly yeah it's very subjective isn't it really <laughs> okay so you're dealing with large sites so what are the differences between putting in a planning application for a strategic land site or for an extension on a property so say i wanted to put in um, an application to extend my property what would the difference be and how would I go about it? What are the steps that I should go through? Um, well, I think it's um, very much a case that there's a, there's obviously a different scale. So you'd have a, a different number of supporting reports and, uh, you know, that reflects on the complexity of the projects at hand. Uh, as I touched on previously, it's about that important pre-application engagement, community engagement with both the local authorities, the statutory consultees where they exist, such as, uh, the AOMB unit, for example, or the drainage authorities um, and looking to the community as well to get their feedback. Um, and then with the major projects as well, you have a lot of complex legal agreements concerning the developer contributions to negotiate over. And so, you know, there, there's a lot more at play. And then there's also the opportunity to deliver a lot more on a, a major project such as open space, uh, infrastructure service improvements so in short to give back more than what would you typically expect for your extension on a property well the number of times i've done it, i've had my own planning permission headaches i can tell you <laughs> <laughs> absolutely that's another podcast isn't it <laughs> yeah, but I, I think basically you know you, you you have alluded to a lot of a lot of it you know underestimating the time that it takes to go through these things you're talking about 10 to 15 years and a contingency there of maybe 10 20 percent that adds an awful lot on to perhaps a, an extension of a home which might just be a few extra days if the builder can't start when you want him to or a couple of extra weeks 
Um, I, I'm the sort of person I change my plans during when I'm seeing the refurbishment going on. I'm thinking, why did I do it that way? Let's just do it that way. So I don't suppose there's a lot of changing plans goes on in your um, your planning process, unless it's forced upon you by the authority or maybe something that turns up. Perhaps there's an archaeological you know, dig that needs to go on or you've got to move bats or you've got to move slow worms or all these other things that happen on a site. Um, the cost of the process, you know, on a small um, extension, it shouldn't be too bad. But then those people who don't get the recommend the, the required planning or the permitted development rights who actually fall foul of the local planning authority can be fined huge amounts. So that's not really good. You know, and, and failing to apply for planning permission, maybe getting reject, rejected because you've got inaccurate plans. All that can lead to an awful lot of headaches. That Does that cover the sort of things you come up with in your site, site Ab planning? Absolutely. I mean, there's always something that will shock um, you, even with the best planning in the world. And, uh, yeah, I'm reminded of a site a few years ago um, over in East Sussex where things were happening as they should. And uh, you're absolutely right in when you said about archaeological dig, um, the archaeologists went in there and they found a Neolithic brick kiln. Um, and that was, you know, a huge, um, you know, unexpected find, really. And it cost a lot of money to dig up. The archaeologists got very excited. My archaeology hat got very excited. But the other side of me, the one that was oh, project managing. Oh, you Yes, indeed. Yes, I did. <laughs> this time of East Sussex rather than the West Country. Um, but, oh, was um, it Crocodile Dundee? Well, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, yeah, without the alligators or um, but yeah, so there, there are always things to trip you up, the, the unexpected. Um, and I think that also, you know, contributes to the interesting part of the role, even if there are those headaches as well at the time of going, gosh, what am I going to do now? Um, you know, how can we forge a way through? But I would say that probably part of the role is problem solving and is trying to find the best solution um, and having something in terms of uh, contingency to try and work out, you know, what are we going to do and how are we going to best manage it? How is technology helping you in your role now? It's certainly helping in terms of um, looking at uh, CGIs and the presentation of uh, sites. So uh, we've very recently used drone footage on a number of our sites and, and that can be found um, on our LinkedIn page at Sigma Homes Group, where we actually show the various uh, stages of construction as the, the, uh, the three sites that we showcase are going up. Um, and I think that's really exciting, actually. I think it shows what uh, we do. I think it helps with um, home owners and, and future buyers of our properties as well to grasp exactly what we're doing and, and where we're doing it. And I think that, you know, we'll see more and more of that. I mean, as I understand it, you know, drones will be used to uh, basically fly up and then can show the red line boundary of a, of a planning application that we might be working on. Um, and then you would be able to gain a sense of the, the, the aerial context. I think as well, you know, you're seeing a lot more VR as well, virtual reality, uh, and that's coming across in, in potentially planning committees. And also, you know, that will be in presentational sales as well. So you can actually put on your headset 
and walk around a, a Sigma home in the future. And I think that will be an exciting change as well. And of course, from the purely nuts and bolts of going out onto the land, of course, you know, you've got the, the Google Street View, which gives you an idea of, you know, where the entrance is, you know, a broad understanding of the context of the site and um, first impressions. But there's no substitute for going on a site and understanding where it sits within the landscape, what it needs to uh, potentially look like um, and who needs to get involved with the project. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. I mean, looking at something in 2D rather than 3D, it gives you far more idea of the scope of a project, doesn't it? And, mm. you know, I, I do love some of the um, images that you see on Twitter. Um, there have been some fabulous views of, uh, I think it was Sisbury Ring that I saw this morning. Somebody had taken a drone image and I'd know, I've walked Sisbury Ring so many times, but never seen it from that angle. It mm. was really fascinating. And oh, wonderful. I, you know, it was great. And I think this is it. You know, we, we sort of think that technology is going to help us get to the end quicker, but it doesn't always because all it does is it throws up more questions than it does answers sometimes. Do you find that? Yes, I think so. I mean, it, it can be used to uh, potentially show there's complications with the development, but of course it's, it's only going to be from a certain perspective, as I say, on, on street view and that's shown in a representation say or you know if you were to go out on site it doesn't tell the whole story so i think it takes you a certain way there but i, I think that you know the the tools of the trade as it were the good old-fashioned going out on site having a look or just simply showing a 2d plan which is all scaled um, you know that will will always have a place i think in planning and planning decision making just going back to the local authorities and their planning departments, I do think a lot of them are under-resourced. What, what can we do about this? How can we make the industry more attractive to people who, like yourself, found that interest at an earlier age, thinking this sounds exciting and then you found your niche? How can we get more people interested in planning and really wanting to make a difference? Um, yes, I think that uh, ultimately we, we are seeing the, uh, the, the niche of planning spilling over into the media headlines with uh, the Environment Bill and renewables and green technology. And I think that's spiking in interest. So I think that's certainly helping more than when, when I was um, starting out. Um, I think that what you were saying in the beginning of your question about local authority planning departments being resourced, I think that's a, that's a really fundamental point because whatever the planning reform package is uh, it has to go back to um, appropriate and adequate planning resources and I know that the government have been looking at it for a number of years now um, and I think you know that that's something that needs to to happen quite soon we're finding that planning decisions are quite slow because uh, planning authorities are trying to do the best job they can with the resources they have but it, it still doesn't seem to be enough. And I think that with all this new legislation to become familiar with working out environmental pressures, um, such as biodiversity net gain, where effectively there is now this sort of expectation of a 10% increase on biodiversity for any site, um, and that will become mandatory in November 2023. Um, and so there's, there's lots to get the, the local planning authorities head around as well as ourselves we're all trying to grasp what that means um, and in some authorities such as Cambridgeshire we're looking at 20 percent which is you know quite a lot if you were to look at 
on-site mitigation, but it's also about what off-site mitigation that could be. And then, of course, we've got all the neutralities, which we've discussed. So, you know, there's all that sort of advancing legislation, irrespective of what's coming through the levelling up agenda. And, um, you know, through it all, uh, I think the industry generally is trying to find uh, a speedier decision making way, um, but it does need better funding as well. I think in terms of, you know, trying to attract the graduates into the industry as well, uh, beyond the media uh, headlines, I think it's, it's important to have uh, apprenticeship programmes. I was a, an apprentice in a way. Uh, because I was doing a town planning degree at, at a local council, and uh, they, they still do that, which is which is fundamental. We at Sigma Homes Group have had uh, a number of um, people that have joined us very recently for work experience, and that has been invaluable because they have uh, enjoyed the experience and the variety of what we do, and and we fed off their um, experience as well. So it's been a sort of two way thing, and. I think that, you know, as I say, the increasing visibility in the news is helping. And I, I heard of your very interesting podcast with Nick Roberts earlier in April, where he was talking about net zero. And, you know, that steps outside of the niche and becomes truly sort of mainstream as a concept. So I, I think that is, is certainly the way to do it beyond also the way that, you know, you can go into schools and universities and talk. And as I said, you know, it was a planning lecture on scheme viability given by two consultants on a town planning degree that uh, really inspired me and by the same token today I'm a guest speaker on scheme viability for the Kent School of Planning and Architecture um, and I enjoyed that experience enormously a few weeks ago speaking to the students so it's about giving back and I think that um, we as professionals have a duty to try and foster and develop the younger and uh, the, the exciting generation that's coming through uh, in the start of their careers. No, I agree absolutely. I mean, we've had a couple of graduates come through our company and one of them's gone on to be a town planner uh, working with a developer and we had a lady years ago who came and she actually became a surveyor as well and you just love it when you see their faces light up because something just grabs them and you can see the passion in them you know and and I yes. still feel passion for property after all these years I mean it's incredible <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, I mean going back to the resourcing um it was interesting that just prior to that we were talking about technology and I don't know why but these two letters popped up in my head AI artificial intelligence will we ever get to the point where we've got technology making the decisions on uh, developments in the future because we've got everything that can be put together and then we've got robots sitting at desks we wouldn't need more <laughs> resources that's probably a bit far-fetched I probably watched not enough of Indiana Jones and too much of all these <laughs> psychological things but um what do you think could artificial intelligence be brought in in any shape or form Oh, I sincerely hope not, Heather, otherwise I'll be uh, working at Tesco's next week. Um, no, I think you, there's no substitute for um, human decision making, you know, at, at the crux. And it is about weighting um, the three pillars of sustainable development, sort of the economic, social, environmental roles. And, you know, yes, uh, I think that AI has a place in terms of gaining ground to gain, you know, an appreciation of constraints on a site. There's software packages out there now that can look at sites and look at the potential that they could have 
in terms of um, you know the, the planning side of things but I still think that you know that uh, for for the decision makers for the council and for ourselves compiling the application seeing what should go into the mix um, you know that will never die um, and hopefully I can stand by those words in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> okay Nick the time has absolutely sped by yes. I want you now to wave your magic wand and tell me how we could balance the need for more homes against the length of time it takes for decisions to be approved what would you propose and why um, well, firstly, I would like to see local authorities being better resourced, whether that be financial and staffing. I think they're quite stretched at the moment. And having worked in that environment for a time, it, it certainly feels that there are not enough hours in the day. So that would be a really good thing to address. And I think then you'd have better capacity for dealing with applications. I think, um, you know, we've looked at it at length, but to explore and to ultimately settle the issues of the environmental problems that are out there at the moment in, in the southeast that's currently stymieing um, planning permissions being issued, that would be also very good. And I think it needs uh, central government direction, really, to bring back certainty in the process. And then finally, I'd quite like to see a form of strategic planning being introduced. So this is a concept that um, really goes beyond the local authority boundaries because it can never purely be contained as, uh, as housing need because there could be environmental constraints within the authority. They could just be that they've over-delivered, um, you know, and so it's very much a case of taking that holistic panoptic view of a region and saying this is the housing that needs to be delivered within the region. This is the infrastructure and the employment that goes alongside that. Um, and then it's a question of trying to introduce um, procedures or processes about how to administer that. I'm not quite sure what form that would take, but I do think that there is an argument to be had around that because uh, the current system doesn't seem to be working. Greenbelt release is uh, politically off limits, uh, even though I think that the function needs to be explored again because it came into inception in 1955. Um, and so, you know, I think that that really would be a good way to progress um, more homes in the length of time it takes for decisions to be approved, at least uh, in terms of a longer term strategy. So 15, 20 years plus. So really, you just need a week with Mr. Gove on the levelling up, don't you? And it'll all be sorted. <laughs> Absolutely. If you have me, then I will be there. Absolutely. <laughs> You've raised some really fascinating issues today, Damien. Thank you so much. But um, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, can you give me your social details, your website and how people can get in contact? Certainly. So we have the Sigma Homes Group website, um, which um, you can you know, look at all of our various schemes that we've got. And you can see uh, what we do in terms of our, um, our land business as well, which is HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash Sigma Homes Group uk. It's also on LinkedIn uh, where you can follow us and we're getting an increasing trend on that. Um, and myself, um, I'm also at Damien S at sigmahomesgroup.co.uk. Thank you, Damien. That's been fascinating. 
Thank um, you for having you've me, been, Heather. No, that's all right. Um, you've been listening to Heather Hilda Darling on Let's Talk Property on Radio Reverb 97.2 FM and DAB. And my guest today is Damien Sullivan, Senior Planning Manager at Sigma Homes Group, Horsham. See you next time.